My earliest recollections is finding myself at the age of five, roaming the streets, eating from dumpsters. We were forced to live with 17 of our other relatives in a very small shanty. No toilet. A lot of crime. No running water. If you want to be out of poverty, then you have to deal with drugs. My friends were actually sold into prostitution. Kids dying for preventable causes. And as darkness engulfs the place, the devil takes over. My relatives would always tell me, Michelle, you are so ugly. You will become nothing but a thief and a drug addict when you grow up. And those were the words that I heard from people whom I expected to love and take care of me. I watched as my 10-month-old sister died in the laps of my mother out of starvation. But right in the middle of this desperation, it was then that compassion intervened. What joy and dancing came to my home at the news that I'd finally got a sponsor. I received my first letter. We wrote back and forth. She said words like, Richmond, I love you. And that lightened me up. My sponsor told me, Michelle, you are beautiful. You are precious to us and we love you and their words touched the very depth of my heart and soul. 18 years later, here I am, a child rescued from hopelessness by a young person. My life was changed. My life was changed. My life was changed by a teenager who sponsored me. One teenager changed my life. She was 15 years old. Her name is Ashley. I called her mom. My name is Michelle. My name is Tony. My name is Jimmy. My name is Richmond. And one act saved my life. And one act saved my life. Saved my life. Will you act? The choice is yours. Sponsor a child through compassion today. Release a child from poverty. From poverty. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Good morning, y'all. Am I safe to say y'all? <laughs> I'm from, uh, I live in Georgia, Athens, Georgia, and uh, there's sometimes when I travel to the northern states, and if I say y'all, I have this weird look. But I'm glad I'm safe to say y'all here. Okay, all right. Yesterday, I had a wonderful time. I had this, it's called a $25 burger, right? Actually didn't finish it, but it was, as I was eating it, and then the fact that I did not finish it was a great reminder for me of uh, my childhood. Now, why was it a great reminder for me during my childhood? It's because so many things happen, and one of the, the scarcity that we experienced was food. Food was one of those things that you really cherished, because we depended on the weather. We grew our own food. And uh, if it's dry season, that means we don't really have a lot of food. We have to depend on grain. And sometimes the grain is not even there because the harvest wasn't really much. And therefore, there were times where we had to decide when was the best time to eat during the day. Was it 12? Was it 2? Was it 4? So that was a decision that my grandfather was responsible for, just to ensure that we ate at the right time, whereby we went to bed full, and then when we woke up, 
we're still at least four, we still have something in our belly. I was born to a Christian mother and a Muslim father. I was born when my mother was in nursing school. The school where my mother was, it was in a small uh, district called Apache. It was about three hours from where my maternal grandparents lived. Now, when my mother was in nursing school, she had my first sister, and then she had me. And uh, my sister was three years old when my mother had me. But somehow, somewhere, word reached my maternal grandparents, and uh, they found out that my mother had children. So they traveled on their bicycle for about three hours. And when they got to a patch, they picked me and my sister Juliet up. And then we went to Kitgum in our small little home in Muchwini. Our home was comprised of five huts. It was shaped in form of an ark. The kitchen, my grandmother's hut, my grandfather's hut, and then the male and the female guest hut. And right in the middle was the fireplace. The doors of each of the huts were shaped very strategically because if you stood at each of the doors, you could see anybody that is coming in and out of the homestead. And the fireplace was a very important part of our home because that is where my grandfather would sit and teach the word of God. Now, I remember so many stories, but my recollection was very clear when, when I was about three years old. When I was three, every evening, the neighboring homes would send their children at the fireplace to listen to my grandfather teach. And uh, I watched my grandfather reach in the bag that he kept right next to his chair and hand out treats to the children that remembered the memory verses from the nights before. You know, at three years old, it got me excited, and uh, I was a little of a bigger three-year-old, and uh, they were like four, five, six-year-olds that were smaller than me, although I was younger. That actually gave me the opportunity to sort of terrorize them to give me their treats. <laughs> and I remember uh, they would give me their treats, of course, because they wanted to play with me, right? When I turned four, I was able to just be able to remember the words and memorize scripture. And the very first scripture that I memorized at the age of four was Psalms 23. You know, I had no idea that that very Psalm would save my life in the years to come. I memorized that Psalm not really knowing the significance of it. I memorized the Psalm. For me, it was because I wanted treats. But you know, God had a different purpose to really help me memorize that Psalms 23. Now I recall when I turned five, I was full of excitement and I really wanted to start school. The Ugandan school system follows the British school system. And uh, every school, they teach in English. So you had to know English to be in school. Now in my village, we speak a dialect, a Choli. It's a lower dialect. And every child that goes to school has to learn English. So when they come back home in the evening, they teach the children that have not been able to go to school. English, the new words, the new math questions. And just exciting, because to watch that, even those that are not able to go to school, their friends teach them when they're playing. Now, I remember at five, I really wanted to go to school, but you know, my grandfather had to administer a very simple test. The test was to just touch the opposite side of your ears. I still wonder why my grandfather administered that test. I had to stand in front of my grandfather and touch my opposite ear. But at five years old, 
I was taller. I was bigger than all the other children. I tried to touch my ear, but I couldn't. I failed the test. This was a Friday. My grandfather told me, you're not going to school. You have to pass this test for you to go to school. It was Friday, and therefore I was consoled a little bit because I had Saturday and Sunday to practice. So at least by Monday, I'm able to start school. Now I remember every second of that weekend, I was thinking about passing this test. It was not a really very, now thinking about it, I was like, that test was a very simple test. No words, nothing. All I had to do was touch my opposite ear. Now, Monday morning, I got up really early, and I still tried to pass the test. I didn't. My, grandfather, my grandmother told me, well, you did not pass the test, and therefore we are going to work in the fields. So we walked for about three and a half miles, and we got to, uh, to one of our gardens, and we began just working, working away. Now, while I was there, I was thinking about all my friends whom I played with in the neighborhood that went to school. I began thinking about the wonderful stories that they would bring back. Now I recall at about 3.30, it got so hot, so we had to move back, just start walking back home and prepare the fireplace for the children that would come every evening. I remember reaching home and really getting so excited. I got all the mats and put them around the fireplace. I started getting the fire ready, got my, grand my grandfather's chair and put it there, got a little bag and put it right next to the chair. His Bible, right there, was ready. We waited, we waited. None of the children showed up. No child showed up that evening because we realized that every parent that sent their child to school that Monday did not see their children because they were abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army. That was the very first abductions that happened. It became very clear to me that that simple, stupid test that I wanted to pass was not important. God protected me. I wanted to pass the test, but God had different plans for me. I remember within days, changes happening. The rebels, now they began coming into the homes. They would come into the homes, kill the parents and take the children. Now when I say rebels, I do not mean grown men with guns and knives. I mean children. Children. 15, 16, 17-year-olds that have been brainwashed to the point of not knowing who their real parents are. They would tie up the other children, killing the parents. We were only left with one option. We had to hide in big groups. Because my grandfather was an Anglican pastor. He actually went to World War II, and he came back home a Christian. And so he was both a local tribal chief and also an Anglican pastor. And so a lot of people looked up to him. And therefore, when we began hiding in the huts, I remember we would have a lot of people come into our home. The women would hide in my grandmother's hut and the men in my grandfather's hut and my grandfather at the fireplace, just praying and watching out for anybody that was coming into the homestead. 
I recall this one evening, there were about 70 women and children in my grandmother's hut. He, she, you know, the doors, they made sure that the doors were not locked because if you keep the doors open and anybody approaches the home, they would think that there's no one, right? So they kept all the doors open. And I remember sitting on the ground by the door and my grandmother was sitting by the door too. She, um, her back was propping the door open and I was sitting by her feet. So we could see every, everything in the homestead. Now I recall, we began wails and cries. We began hearing wails and cries in like the neighboring homes. We knew something bad was going on. And within minutes, a group of five rebels approached our home. They went straight to my grandfather and they asked him, Mosei, how are you doing? And he said he was doing okay. And then after that, they asked him, where is everyone? And he said he did not know. And of course, when my grandfather said he did not know, they began looking in the huts. Two of the rebels began walking towards the, our hut. We could see them coming at us. We knew it was over. One of them reached the door of the hut, held on the latch of the door and looked inside. We were right there. There were children crying. There were people uncomfortable, people coughing in the hut. When this gentleman held onto the latch of the door and began looking inside, we knew everything was over. And then all of a sudden they turned back and they went to my grandfather and they said, you're telling the truth, there's no one. Now for me being five years old, so many things began going through my mind. And the things that began going through my mind were these beautiful stories that my grandfather was telling me that it was, that was out of scripture. And the one that resonated to me the most was the story of the Israelites during the Passover. God was able to protect them. For me, it began, it began to really clear up in my mind that these were not mere stories. It was truth. Because at that very moment, I realized that God protected us. We were part of the Passover. Even if we were there, God protected us and the rebels did not see us. From that moment on, I began to realize the importance of trusting in God and believing what scripture says, because it is truth. Now I recall that time, the robots began to realize people were hiding in their huts. And so the first thing they would do when they came into a home, they would close the doors and lock it with a padlock and then set the homes on fire. My grandparents had to derive a different means of survival for the grandchildren. My grandmother would line up blankets in one corner of her hut and give instructions at about 5 p.m. to pick up the blanket and go hide in the forest. By this time, I was six years old. Every evening, my grandparents would give instructions. It's important that you hide by yourself. You cannot hide with your sister. You cannot hide with me. You have to hide by yourself. The silence was deafening. Especially when you hear people moving, walking, not saying one single word. Every evening I'd pick my blanket, walk for about two and a half miles, find somewhere to hide. 
and then in the morning walk back at home. The mornings were the hardest because we were not sure which family member was abducted. We always stayed at the fireplace praying for everyone's return. As soon as everybody returned, we gave thanks. I remember it, it, it began getting harder and harder to find a place to hide. So we had to walk longer distances. This one evening, I walked about four and a half miles. I got to a very thick bush, tall trees, but at the bottom was just lots of grasses and small, shorter trees. It was very dark that evening, and it was drizzling a little bit. The only thing I had was my blanket and the dress that I, of course, I wore every day. I remember covering my head because I did not want to get wet. And I remember I started dozing off. I began hearing noises around me, but I wasn't really sure of what noises they were, whether they were people passing by, rebels coming, trying to look for people, or just wild animals. The, noise the noises around me intensified, and so I just turned to look behind me. I could not see anything at first. Then I turned to look a second time. It was a big python snake just coming at me. The python snake approached me and began calling itself around me twice and began squeezing me. At that point, I knew that I was going to die, but I was also concerned that if I died, I wanted to know exactly where I was going. And the first thing that I started doing was to confess every little sin that I could remember at the age of six. And I recall remembering so many stories of how God was able to save several people when they were in danger. And the one that stood out for me was the story of Daniel in the lion's den how God saved him. By this time, the snake was really squeezing me, just squeezing the life out of me. I had actually observed a python kill a um, baby goat, a kid. And I was really small. And so I knew that it was very easy, I was going to die. There was really no question of whether I was going to live or I was going to be eaten up alive by this python. And guess what? The very first time that I memorized at the age of four, I began saying it out loud, the Lord is my shepherd. As I got to the end of it, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The snake began uncoiling itself, and it left me. Do you know what that does to a six-year-old? There is no one, there was no one who could convince me that God did not exist. That moment was a reassurance that even if I was going through so much, he was with me. God was protecting me. I felt helpless so many times, but he was there, encouraging me to go on. I remember a lot of changes going on again, whereby the rebels now, they would ban everything they would come into contact with. And that meant we didn't really have anywhere to hide. That meant we had to start moving from place to place. We would walk long distances. 
And I remember one day we walked for almost one day. I was so tired. I was so hungry. I was so thirsty. But there got a time when I did not think of what was really bothering me physically. I was hungry for more. I began getting so spiritually hungry. I wanted love, I wanted safety, I wanted hope. The physical need did not matter anymore. I remember just praying for love, praying for peace. The most instrumental person for me at that time was my grandfather. He never swayed from the word of God. He held everybody together. I remember him talking to me and told me, you cannot live like this. You have to go to the Kapta city. See, when my grandparents picked me and Juliet up from my mother and my father, my mother left my father and he, she moved down south to the Kapta city. By this time she had finished school and she was a midwife in the Kapta city. My grandfather put me on that bus. We traveled for eight hours down into the Kapta city. We reached the Kapta city. And the first, mind you, I had never left the village, never. By that time, I didn't know English. Never seen a doctor, never been to school, never seen a dentist, never wore a pair of shoes. Was just plain on olive at the bus stop. Very scared, very traumatized. And the first person that I see at the bus stop was my mother and my little sister, Charity. My mother asked me, how are you? And I told her that I was okay. Then we went, we got into another taxi and we got home. This home was special to me. The home where my mother stayed was special. It was a one bedroom home that had a, it had a sitting room area and small little kitchen. I wouldn't really call it a kitchen. I'll call, more so call it a hallway. It was a hallway that was transformed into a kitchen. And my mother's bedroom was one of the places where none of us went. My mother really looked so different. She looked like she was fading away. She had these rashes on her arms and her legs and she didn't really say much. And I remember our bed was in the living room area and we would lay down papyrus mats. And then there was this poster on the wall and you could only see it clearly when you're laying down. It came from Jeremiah and it was, uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. I will, heal, I will forgive their sins and heal their land. So I saw that every night. Now, mind you, I did not know English, so my younger sister was the one reading these things from the wall. I remember just something weird going on in the, in the home, whereby if my mother called out, my older sister, Juliet, the first thing she did was to get this box, and then she'd wear the gloves and go in my mother's room and then after a couple of minutes, she'll come out and take the gloves off and put it in the trash. Now that was going on every time my mom called, it happened. 
I didn't want, I didn't, it was just so many things going through my mind. What is this? What is she going through? Why does my sister have to put on gloves to go in her room? And why does she take it off and throw it in the trash every time? I remember this one Saturday, my mom came out of her room. My mom rarely came out of her room because she was very weak and very frail. She came out of her room and she told me, I'm taking you to church and I want you to get ready. So I got ready. Then we began walking to church. My mother walked to church. That was 12 kilometers. We reached the church. There was a line on the left, just children lining up. Other children were playing. And then my mother went to the right-hand side. She told me, wait behind the line. So I waited behind the line. I remember trying to peek from behind the line to see what was going on at the front. But then I was also excited because everyone that left the line and was down at the front, you'd see smiles on their faces, right? So I knew definitely this line is, there is a miracle at the front of this line. And as I waited, eventually it was my turn. And so they told me, oh, hold this. It was a rectangular wooden board. Hold this board in front of you. So I held it in front of me. It had these, uh, these letters and numbers, UG1270188. I held a thing in front of me and they told me to look straight up. I looked straight and a flash went out. They're taking a picture of me. They took a picture of me and that was the very first picture they had taken of me. They took a picture of me and they made something like this. My packet ended up at Hillsong Church, Sydney, Australia. And in May of 1988, I received a letter from Maria and Hanshu telling me that they were excited to be my sponsor and that they loved me and that they would do everything in their power to release me from poverty in Jesus' name. I remember so many things were going on around me and I was always looking for a constant. And for me, the constant was the letters. Every afternoon, we would uh, gather in the church sanctuary and then we would begin just getting excited as the staff member walked up front and began reading out names. If they read out names, it meant that a child either had a new sponsor or they have a letter. And when we looked around, all the other children were praying that they have a letter or they have a sponsor. Now for me, I was always happy because my sponsors wrote on a regular basis. I would tell them about the weather. I would tell them about school. I would tell them about my mother. I remember being in the program for about three years and during the three years, I started school. I saw the doctor for the very first time. 
was able to get my very first pair of shoes. I began to realize how special I was. After the three, after the three years, I realized my mother just changing. My mother got so sick to the point where her, my aunt, her older sister, Eudius, she has five children, and she lived about 15 minutes from us. And uh, Aunt Eudius came and said, we have to take your mom to the hospital. So she went with mom to the hospital, took her there, and was taking care of her that day. And in the evening, my aunt ended up contracting meningitis, and she passed away that very same day. That left my mother in the hospital without a caretaker. She had to be released to come back home. My mom came back home. She was calm. And the only way she responded was in form of a song. It is well. It is well with my soul. And those were my mother's last words. My mother died of HIV AIDS. I was 11 years old. You can only imagine the anguish I felt. I was mad at God. I began asking questions as to why he was punishing me. I'm only a child. Why are you punishing me? Please show me something that I can do. Or show me a sin that I could repent of. And at least enjoy being a child. I was asking God all sorts of questions. But he was listening to me. God listened to me. And his responses came through the letters that my compassion sponsors would write to me. Some of the letters were prayers. My compassion mom, she was a stay-at-home mom. She had two children, Mira and Helen. And uh, they also had two foster children, Holly and Jackie. And I remember her sharing about her struggles, talking about chores, how she has to tell the kids to do their chores, asking me if I have chores, talk about school. Sometimes she would pick the perfect card to share that exactly has the words that I needed to hear. My sponsor dad, he was, uh, he's a very special person. He's not a people person. He's an introvert. And every time he wrote me letters, I took them very seriously. And some of the lines, some of the letters was like one-liners. Like, I hope you're spending the money. We sent well. I love you, Dad Hans. I needed to hear that. I needed that. And also, because there was so much going on around, I had a lot of questions as to where we were going to go. Where were we going to go? And so we had to move in with our cousins. They were five, we were three, eight children. We were living with our cousins in a one-bedroom home. There were nights that were hard. But it was also very comforting because I was in the compassion program. Pastor Andrew would come every week. And Sarah would come to pray with us. 
Uncle Stephen would come to help us with our homework. Aunt Rose would just come to check on us. We got mattresses to sleep on. Anything that affected me affected my other relatives, the eight of us that were staying in there. So every need in that home was met because I had compassion sponsors. Each of us, we have all grown. And it is because Kampala Baptist Church made it a point to care for orphans, to love children, to live by what they say they will do according to scripture for children, not even just us, but the other children, the single mothers out there that had children and were struggling to parent them. The church was there. Betty, who was the oldest, who was 16 years old, works for the revenue authority in the country, in Uganda. Anna, who was 14, Anna is very special, because she's totally blind. But God was able to protect her, and she's a teacher now. She teaches other blind students. Monica. Monica is in Jordan working with UNICEF. She works with Syrian refugees. Dan works within Uganda with IT. Christine. Christine is a teacher as well. Juliet, my oldest sister, she works for the local government in Kitgum District. Then me, I'm a clinical social worker. And my youngest sister, she's into fashion and design. She's seamstress, she makes clothes. We have become what we are. Because a church like you exists. And I've made it a point to help those children that are living in poverty. And I am not what I am without the church. The church has helped shape every step that I take. And I remember about a year ago, was having a conversation with my son. He's seven years old now, and he was six by then. And he asked me a question, and he said, Mom, what's poverty? I started crying, and he started crying too. Mom, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yes, these are happy tears. They're happy tears because poverty ended with me. That question right there was a reassurance that indeed poverty ended with me. Nobody after me has to experience poverty. And that was only possible because organizations like Compassion International exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Not just to feed them, clothe them, send them to school, dental care, but to release them from poverty physical and also spiritual. Disciple them, tell them about Jesus. Reassure them that Jesus is Lord. God gave us Jesus when he died on the cross, extended us grace. 
and with the same grace, we are commanded to go forth and extend the grace to others. Don't be the last one without grace. I want to thank all the sponsors that are here. You have no idea. You just have no idea what kind of impact you're making in the lives of those children. And I also ask those that are not sponsoring. It's a blessing to sponsor. They sponsor three. And it's, it's not enough. We have to all come together and extend God's kingdom by releasing children from physical poverty, but at the same time also release them from spiritual poverty. I'm going to pray a prayer over you, and I'm going to request you to stand up. It's a prayer. It's a Lord's Prayer, but it's in my native language. It's the very first prayer that I learned as a child. And uh, my grandfather always say that when you need something, you spread your hands out, right? And so when we were always saying the Lord's Prayer, we'd spread our hands out. And then when you're done with the praying, sort of rub your face like this. Right? Okay. Let's humble ourselves and pray. Thank you so much, and uh, we do have great, beautiful. We do have some, um, we have packets at the back. I'll be at the table if you have any questions. It's really a blessing to be here. Thank you. And when we look at scripture and we see this picture of heaven coming to earth, uh, I think there's a time that the Lord's bringing us to where we all could ask the question, what's poverty? The Lord's calling us to eliminate poverty as much as we're able. And uh, I would encourage you to pray and consider, uh, does the Lord want you to change someone's world this morning? My wife and I uh, made, made a decision a number of years back when we were having kids that we would, we could at least sponsor one kid per one of our kids. And, uh, and so that, that's what we did. And we, we have three compassion kids of our own. Uh, the third one we sponsored, we sponsored a kid named Silas because my youngest name is Silas. Um, but it was a girl. I haven't told Silas that yet. Um, Uh, but it doesn't take a lot. And, uh, you know, when I think of uh, the Starbucks cup I walked into this morning, the McDonald's that you guys eat, uh, I've, seen, uh, I've seen teenagers driving around good cars. I was like, Let me say, well, what if God called you to drive a rust bucket f- for your high school years so that you could actually afford to sponsor a kid? Would you do it? You know, car payments, what? I don't want to. I've always drove rust buckets, so I don't know what a car payment is. But, <laughs> but th- those, are the, those are the choices we make every day because God's calling us to something beyond that. I'm not saying having nice cards is bad, but, but pray and ask the Lord, is there a, does he want you to change someone's world this morning? That might mean you have to sacrifice some McDonald's, some Starbucks, or maybe even your car, but, um, but it's worth it. When you hear stories like that, it's worth it, right? 
story. The last thing, um, all of also, you know, compassion is great because they, they provide for the needs, but they also, um, not fit just physical needs, but spiritual needs. And I recognize that we live in a city where we have much, uh, but there's something in this, in this room this morning that uh, I would say you're probably living in spiritual poverty. And um, the neat thing about what Jesus has done is the scripture says that we're no longer orphans, but he's adopted us to be his sons and daughters. And maybe this morning you need hope. And Jesus wants to adopt you. He wants to be your sponsor. And he, he's paid the price already on the cross. And he says, come. And so if you need hope this morning, um, I want to invite you to pray with me as we close. And I'm going to pray two things. One, that um, God would uh, move our hearts if he's calling you to change someone's world with compassion. And secondly, um, you know, if you're someone that you recognize that you're in spiritual poverty and need hope and you need Jesus, um, I want to invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you that uh, that you looked at the cost of what it meant to adopt us and uh, it wasn't too much. That it was worth it for you to come from heaven's throne to take on human flesh to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And uh, so, Jesus, we just say that you are Lord. Uh, in the midst of this uh, broken world, we thank you that you are Lord. And Lord, we know that sometimes you respond to people's needs by moving other people's hearts. And this morning, God, we ask that you would move our hearts if you're calling us to change someone's world, uh, to sacrifice some kind of comfort in our life to have the capacity to do that. Lord, I pray that you would just move our hearts right now. Lord, what are you asking from us? And Lord, for those this morning that recognize, even though we have much, that they're living in a place of spiritual poverty, Lord, that they're, that there's a hope that they need in the midst of their life now. And God, we just pray that you would bring hope. And if you're in that place this morning, I would invite you to pray with me. That Jesus, I need you. I need you to be Lord of my life. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the, that you've forgiven my sin, that you've taken every barrier between me and you. And I freely accept that gift of grace in Jesus' name. If you're someone that prayed uh, that prayer with me this morning for the first time, I invite you to just come and chat with me. Um, I'd love to know that so I could just pray for you and support you. If you have any other needs, uh, we'll have a prayer team available at the front. Um, and also in the foyer, there's a prayer, ba prayer banner there. Um, other than that, uh, if the Lord's moving you to change someone's world, go sponsor one of these children. And if you're not going to sponsor a kid, at least help us tear down. We'll see you next week for kickoff. Uh, blessings.